Good morning. Our reading is from Daniel chapter 7, and we read the whole chapter. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's dream of four beasts. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind and he was as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I look, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your full of your flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard, and on its back it had four wings, like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth, it crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little horn, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being, and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothes was white as snow, his hair on his head was white like wool. His throne, throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon, upon thousands attended him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached, approached one of those standing there 
and ask him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying. With its iron teeth and bronze claws, the beast that crush and devour its victims and trample on the food whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other one horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and had eyes and mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me his explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely dis destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Thanks, Sal. Uh, youth Church, that's your cue if you'd like to head out. The rest of us, we're going to stick in here. We're going to have a look at Daniel 7. Um, uh, <clears throat> my name's Tim. If you're new or visiting, a special welcome to you. It's great to have you along. Uh, let me make sure I got my notes this week. Murray, you didn't take them again. Murray stole my sermon notes the other week, by the way. I didn't leave them there. He knocked them off me. <clears throat> um, what do you do when you come to a passage like Daniel 7? Well, the first instinct ought be to pray. So let's do that, hey, folks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us today. Help us to see and understand what you intend in this part of your word. This part that you cause to be written for our benefit. Through it, we ask that you would help us to see you more clearly to trust you more fully, and to serve you more faithless, uh, faithfully. We ask it for Jesus' name. Amen. Rightio, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to answer an age-old question, a question you've been wondering for a long time, and it's simply this. It'll come up on the screen. Why are fire trucks red? You knew it. You've been wondering it. Let me tell you. It works like this. Fire trucks are red because fire trucks have six wheels. Yes, you know how they've got sort of two doubles at the back and then singles at the front? Six wheels. Fire trucks are also usually attended by a crew of six people. Now, follow this with me. Look carefully because six plus six equals 12. You with me so far? 
6 plus 6 equals 12. There are 12 inches in a ruler. Queen Elizabeth II is a ruler. The QE2 is an ocean liner that sailed the seven seas. The sea is full of fish and fish have fins. Now we all know that fins hate Russians. The Russian flag used to be red. Fire trucks are always Russian around. Therefore, fire trucks are red. I mean, I, okay, it's a bit cheeky, but I start this way today because we're looking at Daniel 7. All right, Daniel 7 represents a stylistic shift in the book of Daniel from the narrative writings that we've been used to in chapters 1 to 6. Now, oh, well, narrative, you know, there's accounts of what happened to people in time and space to what we call apocalyptic writing. Writing that's based around dreams and visions and symbols that are far more abstract and less concrete in understanding. Apocalyptic writing is therefore it's sort of concerned with revealing the unseen spiritual reality that's operating above and beyond and behind the physical reality that we see and experience. If you can imagine, it's a bit like someone pulling back the curtain of physical reality to reveal this sort of heavenly vantage point. A heavenly vantage point with which to understand the events of history in their fullest and final sense. But if you can imagine trying to take in the full final account of everything that's happening, of everything that happens, trying to understand supernatural realities from a, from a natural point of view, that is so large and lofty to take in that it's impossible to describe with precision, yes? And so we end up with visions and dreams and symbols and descriptions of this final reality that kind of paint a picture in our minds, but it's not a picture you could paint. Do you understand what I mean by that? I, mean, I liken it a bit to our experience of our own dreams. You'll know this. You wake up in the morning, you've had a dream that you can't quite describe to someone else. And so you end up saying things like, right, we were at your house, but it wasn't your house, but it was definitely your house. It was on a hill, there was a river, and then, and then your mum came and it wasn't, but it wasn't your mum, but it was definitely your mum. Are you feeling me? It's not that you don't remember your dream or you don't understand what happened, but you just find it difficult to explain it to others because the truth is in dreams, time and reality are skewed somehow. Our apocalyptic writing is like this. And this is the style of Daniel 7 to 12. This is what we'll be dealing with uh, on our way to the end of Daniel, the book of Daniel. Now, I mention this because generally when it comes to apocalyptic writing and understanding and appreciating apocalyptic texts, you, you sort of get generally two groups of people. <laughs> In fact, there's two errors I want you to avoid. Don't fall into either of these traps. The first trap is a bit like why fire trucks are red. Uh, these are the people who spend all so much time and effort trying to neatly figure out everything with precision, often through strange, inconsistent, and even unnecessary speculation that really just runs the risk of missing the big, important, unambiguous point in the centre. Fire trucks are red because it's really hard to miss a big red truck. Don't do that while we're in the back of Daniel. Don't do that. In, the, in fact, know now, be aware, if you haven't read it yet, be aware that there are far more sideline questions in these chapters than we've got answers for. There are many more points of interest and many more points of intrigue that we will not deal with neatly. But the main point is clear. The main point is clear. We'll get to it. All I'm saying is you don't miss the trees or the forest for the trees, as they say. 
Now, by the way, does anyone else, does anyone here recognize himself in this category? Who's willing enough, to, who's brave enough to say they recognize themselves in this sort of space? That desire to have everything sort of neatly stacked, every detail accounted for, every possible link made, every question answered in this chapter. Who, who's that? Yeah, good. Thank you. Honest. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's a wonderful trait for your household budget. But you'll end up going cross-eyed and you'll get confused and disappointed if you try to flatten out apocalyptic writing like, in, like Daniel in that way. It's not how, how it works. Don't do it. It's the first trap I want you to avoid, folks. Over-attention to the details. <laughs> but there's a second trap too, and the second trap is at the extreme opposite end of the spectrum. It's those who read books like Daniel, and there are other texts like this apocalyptic writing in the Bible, who read it and realise this is a bit weird, this is a bit different. This is probably going to take a little bit of time to work out and get a hold of. Therefore, I'll quickly assume it's not important at all. And I'll skip it like leg day at the gym. All you blokes walking around with broad chests and toothpicks, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> who recognises themselves in that camp? The ones who just go, this is whack, ah, just going to gloss over it. Prone to think that the apocalyptic stuff, it's just too weird, therefore it can't have anything concrete or helpful to say to me here and now. Let me, can, I, can I just say up front, both of those attitudes are wrong. In fact, I would go so far as to say that if you understand the big point of Daniel 7 properly, it will rightly and necessarily transform the way you think about everything else in life. Now, that is a massive statement. Did you hear that? I'm saying it's that significant. That if we actually understand apocalyptic writing and this heavenly reality of the end times in their full and final sense, if we understand Daniel 7 rightly, amongst all the strange and intriguing details... If we see and hold on to the clear, unambiguous main point at the centre, it will transform the way you see, the way you understand, the way you think about everything else that happens in your life. And the reason for that is simple. It's because knowing how things end changes the way you live in the middle. Casper had some cracking examples of that earlier. Knowing how things end, which is the major focus of apocalyptic writing, to reveal the unmissable big picture truth at the end of history, knowing how things end drastically impacts the way you understand and respond to things in the middle. Again, you know this is true. It's like the movie with the dramatic plot twist at the end. The classic examples are always, you know, the sixth sense, the usual suspects, the departed, a beautiful mind, inception, the empire strikes back. I am your father. Watch that again and tell me you're surprised. You can't. In fact, Tiana just recently read a book, Where the Crawdads Sing. Anyone read it or watched that? It's just been made into a movie. Big twist at the end. The butler did it. Sorry, I didn't read it. No, that's not true. I don't know what happened. <laughs> but once you know how these things end, you can't watch the movie the same way anymore. Knowing the end so dramatically, dramatically, dramatically affects the way you respond in the middle, and it's true of apocalyptic writing. So let's, let's turn now with this in mind to Daniel 7 and see what we're not to miss Turn there in your Bibles. Hopefully you've got an outline. I've got some little points to hopefully help you sort of along the way. Use that by all means. Write down your questions and your queries. But let's have a look. What's the first thing we ought to notice? Well, verse 1, you'll notice that we've gone back in time again. Chapter 6, chapter 7 rather, verse 1 says this. In the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind. He was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. In other words, we've gone back. The things that we're reading now have happened, well, they, they happened, um, sorry, what we read in 
7, 8, what we will read in 7, 8 and 9 actually take place before the events of chapter 6. There's a bit of a switch up in, in time. And Daniel writes in the substance of his dream, really, it, literally he says, he writes down the, the sum of the thing he was told, I think further reinforcing that it's an imprecise general nature of his recollection. And what is the substance of his dream that he doesn't want you to miss? Well, the first and very obvious thing that you can't miss are four whopping big beasts in his dream. Each beast different and more frightening than the last. Let's have a quick skim over these as I look through them with you. The first beast, verse 4, starts off looking like a lion with wings, but ends up looking more like a man and standing on two legs. That's strange. The second beast, verse 5, a hungry-looking bear, but think ferocious hungry bear, not yogi hungry bear. The third beast gets stranger again, verse 6. Daniel describes it like a four-headed flying leopard. Haven't seen one of those often. And then the final beast, verse 7, which really is beyond description. Did you notice? He doesn't use any sort of animal analogy here to sort of draw a comparison. In fact, it seems like some sort of a hybrid, not quite fleshly, not quite machine. It's got iron teeth. It's covered in horns. Daniel instead focuses in on the frightening, terrifying power of this beast and the devastating effect it has on all those around them. Have a look at the back end of verse 7. This is what it says. Daniel looks and he says, It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the other beasts. Daniel recognizes there's something different about this beast. And it wasn't just about the way that it looked. I want you to notice it's something about its manner that is very different also. In fact, have a look. For example, as terrifying as the first three beasts appear, Daniel is immediately aware that they are under some kind of control or influence from someone or something outside of themselves. Did you pick that up as we went through? Have a look with me. See it there in verse 4 again. The lion's wings are ripped off. By who? It's made to stand on two legs. By who? Furthermore, the mind or the heart of a man is given to it. By who? Who is controlling these things that are happening to the beast? It's similar with the second beast, in the bear in verse 5. It is given a clear instruction from an as yet unidentified voice. Get up, eat your fill of flesh. Someone's instructing this beast, but who? And likewise with the third beast, the four-headed flying leopard-like thing. Verse 6 it says it was given authority to rule, which again begs the question, given authority by who for what? Because some other entity is clearly in control here. But it seems different with the fourth beast. No clear indication of any outside influence speaking over this beast is given. Instead, this beast suddenly sprouts an extra horn, verse 8. If that's not weird enough, this horn has eyes and a mouth. And rather than being told what to do, it starts boasting. Boastful words. But again, the question is, boastful words against who? What is going on here? This is weird. And if you're left scratching your head at the moment, Daniel was too. But just look like all good dreams. Suddenly there's a scene change. Verse 9. In fact... It's verse 10 that tells us we're switched to a courtroom scene. There's books, they're open. And the presiding judge over this heavenly court is none other than God himself. How do we know it's God? 
Look again at the descriptions in verses 9 and 10. Verse 9 says, Thrones were set, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days? The one who precedes time himself? The one who is existent in eternal power? That's God. And like other theophanies, and when I say theophanies, I just mean other experiences of people sort of getting a glimpse of the awesomeness of God. If you want to uh, draw a comparison, write down Ezekiel 1. Go and have a look at Ezekiel 1. He talks about the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Again, there's this sort of removed language that he can't quite capture, but it's enormous. God depicted as dazzling white. An indication of his purity and his holiness. He's hard to look at, like the sun. And yet he's surrounded by flames and fire. Do you know there's fire going on everywhere? It's around him, it's on his chair, it's on the wheels of the... the, It's flowing out from... It's everywhere. There's there's fire aplenty here. He's fierce. This character is not namby-pamby. This is a fierce character. That fire is a symbol of his judgment and his wrath. And more than that, he's surrounded and tended by millions of figures, showing the extent of his rule and reign. This is an enormous, powerful figure. Here is the one in all authority. As a, as a quick aside, folks, realize this is the God of the Bible. This is the God we worship as Christians. If you're a Christian here, this is the God you worship. He's not some airy, fairy, sky daddy, slash peeping Tom, who's spying on and pouncing on people willy-nilly for his own amusement. That's how he's often caricatured in our culture, isn't he? Or if it's not that, it's some sort of old fuddy-duddy killjoy that we've moved on from and we probably should have never listened to in the first place. Someone who's completely forgettable, easily ignored. Now tell me, is that not how God has spoken of in our culture? And yet look at how different it is from the reality of the living God described in his word. Is this a God that you could forget about? Is this a God you can safely ignore or boast against as some people attempt to do? Friends, the fourth beast certainly thinks so. In fact, look at verse 11. Daniel continues to record. He says, Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. Now we see who it is that the the horn, this fourth beast, is speaking against. He is now blaspheming God directly in his presence. It's a very bold move. And to what overall effect? Zippo. In fact, keep reading verse 11 because Daniel says, I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. I almost feel a little disappointed at this point. I, it almost feels a little bit odd. It feels like they should have, this is a tense scene. There should have been some sort of showdown, some sort of mono a mono, good versus evil, a battle for the ages. And this same terrifying, frightening beast that was smashing everything in verse 7, Daniel now watches as this beast is put away with by God, the Ancient of Days, without a struggle, without another whimper. God doesn't even break a sweat. For all the bluster and blow of the beast's brazen boasts. Before God, he's brought to naught, and it happens in an instance. Half a sentence worth of description. That is an awesome image that Daniel is privy to here, isn't it? 
That is an awesome scene that he is watching on in. And as I said, it's the one that sort of paints an image in your mind, but at the same time isn't an image that you could paint. It's both amazing, awe-inspiring and terrifying all in the same breath. But then out of nowhere you will have read or you will have heard, but another figure appears. But this time it's not a beast, it's a human. Verse 13, look what it says. It says, someone like a son of man. But it, he's, sort of, it's, he's more than that. He's not just human, he's also divine. He's coming with the clouds of heaven. And we know that he's more than just a man because he's able to stand before the Ancient of Days on his own terms. And he's taken into the Ancient of Days' presence, further exemplifying his otherness. I mean, compare that with, again, some of the prophets who have been taken up in visions before God. Isaiah 6, what, what does he do? He hits the ground like he's dead. Woe is me. I've come in contact with God. This is crazy. I can't do it. I can't stand up. I'm just down. Every time someone is given a glimpse of God, they hit the deck. This man stands before the throne. And more than that, actually, he's given all authority. He's given all glory. He's given all power in verse 14. And in just like the ancient of days, all people start worshiping, worshiping him. His is a kingdom that will never, ever end. It's not a short-lived authority that he's given like the beast. No, no, this is a king in a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It's powerful stuff that's going on here. It's really huge. Who is this man? That's got to be the question you're asking. And before we rush to Jesus, though we must and we will, how does Daniel understand this vision at this time? What did he make of it all? Verse 15 says, I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And he's in a vision and yet he's able to participate in a vision. And so he asks the meaning. And it's just like chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar had a similar dream that needing interpreting. Daniel doesn't know himself, so he asks for divine insight. And actually, have a look at, again, the, the explanation that's given. It's very short. Look at uh, halfway through 16. So he told me the interpretation of the things. This is the sum total of the interpretation he gives. The four great beasts are four great, uh, sorry, the four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Daniel wants more. He's a little bit like, hang on, what about that, what about that, that fourth one? That was whack. What about those little horns? That was crazy. But really, he's just given a very basic understanding to begin with. The vision is about four kingdoms, just like in Daniel 2. And just like in Daniel 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about a, a statue of four different metals. It's four different kingdoms. But as impressive or strong or towering as these kingdoms might appear, and they will appear like that for a time, God's in ultimate control. He'll bring about a full and final end to every king and every kingdom, and he'll establish his forever king and his forever kingdom. And in fact, in Daniel 2, it was this supernatural rock, do you remember, that was sort of cut out without being touched by a human hand, smashed the statue, symbolizing the other kingdoms. And then that rock grew to a mountain that covered the entire world. God establishing his kingdom. Here in Daniel 7, God's slaying the beasts, and one like the Son of Man has been given all power, authority, glory, and dominion on the same level as God himself. And the saints of the Most High will possess this kingdom, receive this kingdom forever and ever. Folks, this is the big unambiguous point of all of Daniel. In fact, I want to say of all of the Bible. 
This is the central fact that shapes all reality. It is simply that God's king will be established over all the nations in the end, bar none, and he'll reign forever. That's the big unambiguous truth in the centre of history, of reality, that you need to see, that you need to apply, that you need to respond to for every other situation in life. So in the final wash-up, God has guaranteed the victory over any and all the forces arrayed against him. That is, a, that is wonderful news for those who are on his side and terrible news for those who aren't. I don't know which one you are here. If you're someone who knows that you're not on God's side at the moment, this is a time of reflection. This is a time for pause for thought. It's awesome if you're on God's side. In fact, it turns out that God's people are on the right side of history after all, despite the fact that we're told the opposite so often. That's good news. But something doesn't add up in this, in this chapter. I don't know about you, but I hope you notice Daniel, he's clearly on team God. Right? I mean, time and time again, all through this cha- the chapters of this book, God's divine favour has been on Daniel and has helped Daniel to remain faithful and fearless in the face of opposition. Daniel's part of team God, so why is he responding so glum? Did you notice that in verse 28? In fact, read it with me. This is what he says at the end of chapter 7. He said, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. The same thing happens at the end of chapter 8. Technically, we're covering both chapters today. It really just goes and drills a little bit deeper into the specifics, if you like, of chapter 7. I'll let you read that at your own leisure. But at the end of chapter 8, 827, Daniel is likewise exhausted, sickened and appalled by these visions. Why? Why is he so glum? It's not because he's upset at the good news that God's ways will win out. It's not that he's sad about the good news that he's on team God. No. Rather, he's concerned by the other reality and the other truth that was mentioned along the way. And that is that it won't always look like victory for God's people on the way to the glorious end. It won't always look like victory for God's people on the road to the glorious end. Do you realize that? Did you notice this actually as we went through? Look again at Daniel 7.21. When Daniel is noticing the fourth beast, he says he watched. This horn was waging war against the saints, that is the people of God, and defeating them. That's a problem. And in verse 25, the one explaining things to Daniel says, the saints will be handed over to him, the him being an evil king of an evil blasphemous kingdom. And they'll be handed over to him for time, times, and half a time. In other words, an indescript yet defined period. Daniel's not glum about the news that God's ways are right and that he's on the right side of history or that God will have the ultimate victory over evil. He's glum because that promise and that guarantee is in the future. He's pale because he realizes that for him personally, the times are going to get a whole lot tougher before they get any better. And friends, that's still true of our situation today. Do you realize that? The truth of God's finished victory over every evil kingdom, over every sin, the world, the devil, his victory in Jesus is the central truth that ought shape your reality and your life's decisions from this day forward. But that doesn't mean it's going to get all rainbows and lollipops. It's going to get harder before it gets better. That's still the reality for Christian people today. 
And that's a difficult one to process, isn't it? I, mean, I was trying to think of a good illustration. I was talking to Casper because he runs an Ironman recently. And I was like, what a nut. <laughs> Imagine an excellent, I mean, I'm jealous. <laughs> Imagine that you've been invited to a feast, a feast with enough food for last, to last a month. You know, it's three-star Michelin's, the, the whole nine yards, the full whack. Imagine you've been invited to this feast. You've just got to do an Ironman race before you can get there. Am I right, Casper? A 4K swim, 180K bike ride, 42K run? Give or take. In other words, 15 hours of pain before the pleasure. 15, hour, 15 plus hours probably. What did you do in 12, Casper? Wow. That's the kind of moment that Daniel is having though here. Daniel is in the dread of the difficulty set before him despite the grand reality on the other side. But it's on a much larger scale. It's on a much larger scale than 15 plus hours of running and riding and swimming before a feast. It's on a much larger scale. In fact, a better analogy than that really is what I want to say, that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus. Do you remember that night before his crucifixion? Do you remember how Luke describes it? Jesus deep in prayer, knowing the pain and the horror that awaits him in the morning. In fact, have a look at Luke twenty-two forty-four, because Luke records that Jesus was in such anguish that his sweat was like blood. That's serious anguish, folks. Do you think that he'd forgotten what lay on the other side of death? Do you think he'd forgotten? Not a chance that he'd forgotten. He knew that God would glorify him. His father would vindicate him. He knew that. He'd been speaking about this his entire ministry. But it didn't make the moment before his trial and torture suddenly easy. It was terrifying to consider. And who can't appreciate why? It's a very human response, isn't it? And friends, the big unambiguous truth at the centre of Daniel 7, which remains the central, most important truth in reality, is that God has already won the victory and yet it's going to be a slog fest to the glorious end. Given the timing of the state of origin, you'll forgive me for a footballing analogy, I hope. It's like a one-sided state of origin match. God's team is up a gazillion to nil. Victory is certain, but the opposition hasn't gone away just yet. In fact, there's still a few more minutes left on the clock. Time, times and half a time, whatever that is. And therefore, you should expect the big hits and the bruises and the foul shots to keep coming from the opposition until the final whistle, despite the assurity of the result. Friends, that's where we're at. That's the moment in history that we live. In fact, we live slightly different to Daniel. It's in between the first and second coming. How do we respond to that? What do we do with this? There's two quick points I want to make out. They're on your outline. Have a look at them there. Two quick points about how we respond. Number one, eyes fixed on Jesus. Number two, thick, rich, robust community of believers. Number one, the most significant thing we need to remember and we need to, re to respond, folks, is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus, the captain coach, who scored all the tries, who kicked all the goals, who's made every tackle, who's taken everything, literally everything the opposition can throw at him, and he's still standing and he's still leading by example. In fact, have a look at Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3 with me. The writer of the Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Friends, the first way to respond in a world that is increasingly growing hostile to God and his people is to keep your eyes fixed there on the captain, on our saviour, on the one who is able to empathise so deeply because he is one of us. He's carried us this far. He will carry us home. The author and perfecter of faith. Take your eyes nowhere but to Jesus. But the second one is the one I want to I embellish a little bit more here. It's number two is that because of this, we need to ensure that we are developing thick, rich and robust community as believers, as a church, because we know that the road home is a rough one, because we know that we'll need to help and support each other, because that is why God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ and made us a family. This is our vision and our desire at WEC. It's not just to be a bunch of people or acquaintances who might make occasional eye contact on a Sunday. No, no, no. It's a bunch, no, a family of believers who show up for each other. Who aren't watching from the sidelines and occasionally cheering when they've got the time. But people who are in the game, in the thick of the battle, who are there to celebrate the high moment and rally around the weak and wounded. Another footballing analogy. It's the thing I admire so much about the Queensland State of Origin team and deeply loathe as a New South Wales supporter. Have you noticed anything? Have you watched any of the Origin? It's that the Queenslanders just keep showing up. Oh! There is a culture in the Queensland players' mindset deep in their psyche that is impossible to miss and equally impossible to contain. They are so invested in the cause of winning and therefore so committed, deeply committed to each other in that quest that you can't smash it out of them. It drives me insane. That's just a football team. That's just a football game. Who cares? How much more invested ought we be as followers of the Most High God? How much more committed ought we be as brothers and sisters in the trenches to each other, assured of the victory? Not growing lazy with our feet up because we've got... No, ripping in. Keep on showing up. And there's plenty of ways we're trying to bring this to bear at work. There's lots of opportunities to get connected, to be part of developing that kind of thick, rich, robust community of believers in a hostile world. A family of God who love those on the inside so that they go out, to love others on the outside so that they come in. That's our gospel goal, high and clear. Make no mistake about it. And there's lots of things we want to do to see that happen in increasing measure. From church on a Sunday to Bible studies during the week. Jesus, seriously, newish morning teas. There's a trivia night. There's lunch at ours. There's take them a meal. We've got all these programs, but I'm not interested in the programs, folks. We want to do these things better, but I don't want you to wait for those things to roll around. A thick, rich, robust, and therefore loving family of God takes time and effort from everyone to establish. 
And so, friends, a big application point from this week. I want to make sure that you're in the game. Invested deeply in the lives of each other, the kind of family that welcomes others in. So many of you already do this really well, and so many more of us still need to get on board with that vision. It's the vision here that shapes all reality. God has won the victory. You are on the right side of history in, in Team God, but it'll be a bumpy ride to the end. And you'll need others just as much as they need you. Knowing how it ends changes the way you live in the middle. Friends, do you share that vision as God's people? If you're a Christian here already, do you share that vision? I pray that you do. If you're here and you're not a Christian, is that not kind of is that not, not a, a family you'd like to be part of? Is that not a better vision and a better, a better result than the, anything the world has got to offer? I think hands down, yes. Let's stop here. Let's pray and ask that God would grow us this way together. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unambiguous, clear message at the center of all reality is that you are God, you are in control, and you have established your King, Jesus, defeating death, sin, the world, the devil, and you are bringing his kingdom so that everyone will see it, where every knee will bow, where every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And at the same time as we recognize and cherish that glorious truth, Father, we get pale and we get worried because we know it's going to be a bumpy ride to the end. And so, Father, grow us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Grow us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on him as the author and perfecter of our faith. And because of that, help us to continue to grow thick, rich, robust as a community of believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ that we might support and encourage each other to that glorious end. And we ask you to do that for Jesus' sake. Amen.